If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd ask you to open it to the book of 1 Corinthians. Follow carefully as I begin reading in chapter 2, verse 14, and continue to chapter 3, verse 17. Very instructive part of God's Word that is sadly one of the most abused and misunderstood parts of the New Testament. So we're going to learn over the course of our study this morning. It's a part of God's Word that's been misinterpreted by a certain segment of the evangelical church. It has been used over the past hundred years or so cause great spiritual damage either by denying the necessity of holiness in the life of a believer or else by granting unbelievers a false assurance of salvation. We're going to address that false teaching this morning as we work through our text and we'll try to replace it with the correct and biblical understanding of Paul's instruction here about the carnal or the worldly Christian. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I begin reading at verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives a growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. This is the Word of God. It's been a few weeks now since we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians, but in spite of our break over the Easter season, I hope you'll recall that in the early chapters of this epistle, Paul is dealing with division and disunity that had entered the Corinthian church. It's a problem first brought to his attention by a Christian woman named Chloe, as we learn in chapter 1, a problem that Paul will continue to thoughtfully address until the very end of chapter 4. Worldly wisdom had entered into the church in Corinth. As a result, the members were needlessly dividing from one another and were forming rival factions and cliques that were not rooted in legitimate doctrinal differences, but rather in opinions and personalities and preferences. 
Loyalty to their favorite leaders and teachers had become more important than loyalty to Christ. And some of the members of the church were rallying behind the name of Paul or Apollos or Peter, even though all these leaders and teachers were united with one another, were of one mind and one heart in the work of the gospel. Peter, Paul, Apollos were not divided from one another in any sense, but the church in Corinth was splitting at the seams. And Paul is writing to them at this critical moment in time when it appeared as though the work of God might be destroyed from the inside out. Back in chapter 1, the apostle diagnosed the main problem that was plaguing the ancient church, a pursuit after worldly wisdom and a desire for the applause of the world and the culture around them instead of a pursuit of divine wisdom and the approval of God himself. The Corinthians should have been placing their full confidence in the message of the cross, but instead they were placing their confidence in the methods of the unsaved world. In Corinth, the style and eloquence of the preacher had become more important than the gospel being preached, and sadly, many of these believers were convinced that the best way to build a church and to attract men and women to the Christian faith was by using the methodology and the wisdom of the world rather than by focusing on the simple, straightforward preaching of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. Their desire to be accepted and respected by the unbelievers around them, the Corinthians had become ashamed of the gospel, and Paul is now calling these wayward saints back to true wisdom as revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Somewhere along the way, the Corinthians had lost their confidence in the gospel, and Paul spends nearly two chapters convincing them of their error and reminding them that although God's wisdom seems foolish to the unsaved world around us, man's wisdom is ultimately foolishness to Almighty God. For as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. In chapter 1, Paul distinguishes between worldly wisdom and divine wisdom. And in chapter 2, he goes on to remind the prideful Corinthians that God is not impressed with the wisdom of this fallen world and that God in His sovereignty chooses what is low and despised in the world to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Paul is humbling the Corinthians, reminding them it is not eloquence and pragmatic techniques that bring lost people into the kingdom. It is the unconditional election of God and the effectual internal call of the Holy Spirit that enables the spiritually blind to see and the spiritually deaf to hear. Paul wants the Corinthians to understand it is impossible for any non-believer to reason their way into the kingdom of God because in our natural and fallen state we do not accept the things of God and the reason that we do not accept those things according to verse 14 is that we cannot understand them. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, fallen man does not have the moral ability to come to God apart from divine grace and divine enablement. And if a person is ever to be saved and to enter the kingdom, God himself must make the first move by causing that person to come to life through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, they will never understand or accept the things of God. This has been Paul's argument the whole way through these opening chapters. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In chapter 1, the main distinction Paul makes is between worldly wisdom and divine wisdom. In chapter 2, the distinction is between the two categories of people who correspond to these two categories of wisdom. On the one hand are the people Paul calls natural men in verse 14, those who consider the things of God to be foolish and who therefore reject the preaching of the cross. 
On the other hand, are the people Paul calls spiritual men in verse 15, those who have been have been sovereignly brought by the Holy Spirit to discern the wisdom of God and thus to embrace Jesus Christ by faith. In this world, there are natural men and there are spiritual men. In reality, these are the only two categories of people who exist. There are those who are saved. There are those who are lost. There are those who accept the wisdom of God and those who reject it. There are those who discern the true beauty of the cross and there are those who see the cross only as foolishness and a stumbling block. And so, friends, either are the two categories of wisdom recognized by Paul and they correspond to two categories of people in this world, those who are saved and those who are lost. With that brief summary of Paul's argument here in chapters 1 and 2, we can now move forward into chapter 3 as the apostle once again addresses the subject of division within this church and gives the feuding Corinthians three different images or illustrations that will help them understand the gravity of their sin and to see why their tendency towards pride and schism is so harmful for the church, so detrimental to the purposes of God. The first image that Paul will provide here in chapter 3 is the image of a growing baby. The second image is that of laborers in a field. And the third is the image of a building being constructed. With God's help this morning, we're going to examine the first of those three images, which we find in verses 1 to 4, the image of a developing baby. Let's look at those verses again. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? One of the great joys that Leslie and I have had over the past ten years of our marriage is the joy of having children together, the joy of raising those children from the time they were helpless little bundles in the hospital nursery. I can hardly believe that the first of those little bundles is now ten years old. There's great joy as a parent in watching your little ones grow and develop from month to month and from year to year, from the day they learn their first word to the day they cut their first tooth to the day they eat their first bite of food to the day they take that first faltering step to the day they can go to the potty all by themselves. If you ask me, that's the greatest day of them all. Little babies bring great joy and gladness into our lives, and although we might sometimes wish they would stay small and cute forever, the truth is that we are happy as parents to see our children growing and developing according to schedule. But just as it's joyful to see a baby developing normally into a child and then into a teenager and finally into an adult, it's also a tremendous source of sadness and grief when a baby does not grow up as we expect or when a baby's development is delayed for some reason. If a baby doesn't start walking, by the time they reach 15 or 16 months, we begin to worry about them. If a baby doesn't start talking, by the time they reach their first birthday, we start to get concerned. When a baby does not seem to be developing normally, we take them to the doctor. We do everything in our power to help the little one to grow and to develop, to catch up with his peers. Here in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul uses this well-known illustration of a developing baby to describe his experience with the Corinthian church to explain some of the distress and frustration he was feeling as he wrote this letter to believers that were not developing and growing in the way he had hoped. As you know, Paul was the founding pastor of this church. In that sense, he was their spiritual father. Paul was the one God had used to bring these precious people from spiritual death into spiritual life. 
And for nearly two years, he had remained in the city of Corinth and had poured his heart and his life into the ministry for the sake of these newborn Christians that they might grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and eventually that they might become mature adults who would be able to reproduce, to pass on the gospel message to others who would plant new churches in unreached territory. Paul loved the Corinthians as a father loves his children. He did everything he could to help them get a good start in the Christian life to take their first steps of obedience to the Lord. But in spite of all Paul's careful and attentive parenting, something terribly distressing was happening in this church. Five years had passed since the church was founded and most of the Christians in Corinth are still acting like little babies. They're drinking milk and they're wearing diapers. They're throwing temper tantrums. They had not developed according to schedule and the worldly infantile habits that may have been patiently endured by Paul four years earlier can no longer be overlooked or ignored. You know, I think most of us who've been involved in this tremendous task of parenting will identify with Paul in some of his frustration. If a one-year-old baby throws his food on the ground during supper, we put up with it, maybe we even smile and laugh about it when he's not looking. If a five-year-old or a ten-year-old throws his food on the ground, he's going to be disciplined, reprimanded, told to clean it up. A little baby doesn't eat all the food on his plate. We don't mind so much. If an older child refuses to eat the food we pr- prepare and make a big fuss about it, there's going to be a consequence. When a baby leaves their toys all over the place, we clean up the mess without complaining. But when a teenager leaves their stuff all over the house, they have to clean it up. We expect babies to drink milk. We expect babies to throw tantrums. We expect babies to make messes. We expect babies to make mistakes. There comes a time and a point in a child's development when these infantile behaviors are no longer cute or acceptable. And so sometimes we tell our older children or our adult children they need to grow up and act their age. And as parents, we gladly provide for our children and give them food and shelter and clothing, lots of other privileges. But if those children reach the age of 25 or 30 and they've not yet found a job and spend their days playing video games and frittering their lives away without direction and purpose, our patience grows thin and eventually we come to the point where we need to force the issue for their own good, for our own sanity. You either need to grow up and get a job or else you need to get out. Good parenting involves tough love, tough words at times. And what we read here in the first four verses of chapter 3 are tough words of parental rebuke to a group of Christians who are not acting their age. So Paul says to them in verse 1, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. We begin digging into the details of our text this morning. I'd like you to notice, first of all, Paul refers to the Corinthians in verse 1 as brothers, which is an indication he is writing here to Christian people, or at the very least, he's writing to those who have made a public profession of faith in Christ through baptism and have been received into the fellowship of the local church. Paul assumes that church members reading this letter are his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why he refers to them collectively as brothers. But that being observed, we need to be cautious here at the outset not to assume too much about the true spiritual condition of the Corinthians because in actual fact, every Christian church contains people who make a profession of faith, who get baptized, who join the church, who may even serve in the church for a time, 
to later on walk away from the Lord and demonstrate by their words and their actions that they were never genuine Christians to begin with. With the Apostle Paul, we should always give one another the benefit of the doubt on the basis of an outward profession, the evidence of spiritual fruit. On the other hand, we need to recognize the sad reality that some of the people we think are genuine Christians today will later on break our hearts and will demonstrate they were never truly saved to begin with. Jesus spoke about such people in his parable of the soils, representing them by plants that spring up quickly only to wither away and die when persecution and tribulation comes. In 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul speaks about a man named Demas who appeared at first to be a faithful co-worker in the cause of the gospel, but who later fell in love with the world and departed from the Christian faith. The book of Hebrews speaks about professing Christians who fall away and apostatize by sinning deliberately and persistently against the knowledge of the truth and thereby demonstrate they were never true Christians to begin with. I have to say this morning with great sadness in my heart, some of the students I poured my life into in campus ministry, people I served alongside are today no longer walking with the Lord and have by their words and their actions proven they are not true believers. And so friends, the fact that Paul addresses the Corinthians as brothers and sisters shows us he is speaking to men and women who have made a profession of faith, who are actively involved in the church, but it does not prove anything about the true spiritual conditions of their hearts. Paul is giving the Corinthians the benefit of the doubt while recognizing that some of the people reading this letter will later prove through their stubborn disobedience that they were never saved to begin with. We know that this is the case because later on in 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul will encourage the same group of disobedient church members to examine themselves to determine whether they are truly in the faith. Here at Rosedale Baptist, we affirm the eternal security of the believer. We deny that any true Christian who was born again by the Spirit of God can ever fall away from the faith. But even as we affirm that biblical truth with all of our heart, we must make room in our theology for the Bible's teaching on apostasy for these men and women who appear to be Christians, who make a verbal profession of faith, who even show evidence of spiritual growth in their lives, but later on demonstrate they were never saved to begin with what our Puritan forebears used to call gospel hypocrites or false professors. They're not people who lost their salvation somewhere along the way. They are people who were never saved to begin with. Paul's assumption here in verse 1 is that he's speaking to a group of Christians, but somewhat surprisingly, he goes on in that same verse to say that he cannot address them as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. In the beginning of the message this morning, I reminded you Paul's main distinction in chapter 2 was a distinction between the natural man and the spiritual man, that these are the only two categories of people that exist in the world. Now in chapter 3, it appears at first glance that Paul is introducing a third category of people into the mix, the category of the fleshly person, or as the King James puts it, the carnal person. So now we have an interpretive question to deal with in our text. Are there two categories of people mentioned in these verses, or are there three categories? We only have natural people and spiritual people, or are we dealing here with natural people, with spiritual people, and with a third category that Paul describes as the fleshly or the carnal person? I think this is an important question for us to address this morning because of a distinctive and popular teaching that dominates many of our evangelical churches today. A doctrine I'm convinced has done a great deal of spiritual harm and damage to the church of Jesus Christ. 
This doctrine is often called free grace theology or easy believism or carnal Christian theology. It was pioneered and introduced about a hundred years ago by an American theologian named Lewis Berry Schaefer, man who was the president and the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary and a very influential leader among the conservative Christians of his day. In 1918, Dr. Schaefer wrote a book he entitled He That Is Spiritual in which he promoted this new interpretation of 1 Corinthians 3. The idea I've already mentioned that Paul divides humanity not into two categories but into three categories. According to Schaefer, there are natural people, there are spiritual people, and there are carnal people. It's a view that can also be found in the footnotes of the Schofield Reference Bible, which is one of the main reasons this doctrine became so popular and prevalent here in North America. According to Schaefer, Schofield, and others who embrace this understanding of 1 Corinthians, natural persons are those who have never responded to the gospel. Spiritual people are Christians who have responded and are now living the spirit-filled life. And carnal people are believers who have responded but are now living in a perpetual state of disobedience and sin. It's a view that essentially divides the Christian church into two spiritual classes, the spiritual upper class and the carnal lower class, and it was really an attempt on the part of these theologians to accommodate the revivalist style of evangelism that had developed in the 19th century. During the evangelistic crusades and revival meetings of the 19th and 20th century, thousands upon thousands of people in Canada and the United States came forward at altar calls and walked the aisle at revival meetings and church meetings and made public confession of faith in Christ by reciting the sinner's prayer. But tragically, many of these same people who made public professions of faith showed absolutely no interest in the things of God and no evidence of spiritual fruit in their lives. The older generation of evangelicals stemming from Jonathan Edwards and the Puritans would have declared them to be false converts who needed to be born again by the Spirit of God. But the newer generation of evangelicals instead labeled them as carnal Christians and went on to assure them that they would one day go to heaven on the basis of their decisions and their verbal professions even if they remained in a state of permanent disobedience and rebellion to Christ. The only real consequence of disobedience and rebellion, according to this theology, is that the carnal Christian who does not actively pursue holiness will not receive any rewards in heaven and will be like the man described in verse 15 of our text who gets into heaven with his pants on fire. Nevertheless, these teachers say, the carnal man who has made a sincere profession of faith will be in heaven and can be assured of his salvation. First thing I think we need to say in response to this understanding of Paul's teaching is that it's actually a new appearance of an old error that completely severs the doctrine of justification from the doctrine of sanctification. To say that another way, in a simpler way, it's an error that makes holiness and obedience optional for the Christian believer. It's a view that says you can trust in Christ without truly repenting of your sin. It's a view that says you can receive Jesus as Savior but not submit to Him as Lord. It's a view that says you can have eternal security and the assurance of heaven, but you don't need to persevere to the end. And tragically, this is an error that cheapens the grace of God and turns salvation into a kind of fire insurance. People who make a profession of faith because they're afraid of going to hell but have no intention whatsoever of following Christ and living for His glory. And so they repeat the sinner's prayer and they go forward at the altar call invitation to get their free ticket to heaven and then they go on to live however they please with a false assurance in their heart that everything is okay between them and God. 
you're at all familiar with the teaching in the book of James, with the New Testament teaching on the importance of holiness, the need for a true believer to produce spiritual fruit as an evidence of saving faith, you will immediately recognize how poisonous, how unbiblical this teaching is, and how Satan has used this teaching to comfort thousands of lost people into hell, thinking all the while they were going to heaven, and sometimes even being told so by their pastor and their family members. Brothers and sisters, the Bible could not be more clear on this topic. As Christians, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, but at the same time, the faith that truly justifies and saves the sinner is never alone. It is always accompanied by good works and a desire to pursue holiness and to live for the glory of God. The truth of the matter, according to God's word, is that the Holy Spirit sanctifies every person he justifies. The person who is not being sanctified in some way is not saved. Professing Christian who does not pursue holiness and who lives in a permanent state of apathy and disobedience to Christ is not a carnal Christian. He is a non-Christian. He's a person who needs to be evangelized and converted by the grace of God. You want to learn more about this subject, the development of this very dangerous understanding of Christian holiness, I would recommend you read John MacArthur's excellent book, The Gospel According to Jesus, which was quickly followed by a second book, The Gospel According to the Apostles. In these books, Dr. MacArthur makes the following evaluation, which I think is absolutely correct. He says, contemporary theologians have fabricated an entire category for this type of disobedient person, which they call the carnal Christian. Who knows how many unregenerate persons have been lulled into a false sense of spiritual security by the suggestion that they are merely carnal. Christians can and do behave in carnal ways, but nothing in Scripture suggests that a real Christian might pursue a lifestyle of unbroken indifference or antagonism towards the things of God. Another prominent Baptist named Paul Washer has rightly stated, the doctrine of the carnal Christian has destroyed more lives and sent more people to hell than you can imagine. Well, returning now to our text, determining whether or not this popular, prevalent teaching about carnal Christianity was actually the doctrine that Paul believed and taught, I'd like to point out the fact in verse 1 that Paul nowhere denies that the Corinthians he's writing to are spiritual people or suggests that they belong to a different category of humanity because of their disobedience. Rather, he's telling them in these verses a difficult truth. They are not acting like spiritual people. Members of the Corinthian church claim to be Christians. They even boast about their great wisdom and maturity. Well, in actual fact, they are not acting like Christians at all. They're acting like little babies who don't know any better. Or to put it another way, their daily practice of the Christian faith does not match up with their true position in Christ. And all of us need to have that theological distinction in our minds, a distinction between our position in Christ and our practice of the Christian faith. Understand, friends, when Paul speaks about the spiritual person in the concluding verses of chapter 2, he is speaking about our position in Christ and not about our practice of the Christian faith. The apostle is not saying that the spiritual person is some extra pious Christian who lives in a state of constant obedience, while the carnal person is a Christian who lives in constant disobedience. Rather, he's saying the spiritual person is an ordinary believer who has the indwelling presence of the Spirit. In chapter 2, Paul is using the word spiritual to describe our position in Christ, our new identity as men and women who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. 
That should be a tremendous encouragement for each and every one of us, no matter how long you've known the Lord Jesus or how far you've progressed in your walk with Him. If you know Jesus today as Lord and Savior, if you've repented of your sins, if you discern in yourself a new desire to pursue holiness and righteousness, you are a spiritual person. You have a position before God that can never change. He looks at you in spite of all your sins and your imperfections. He sees the perfect righteousness of His Son credited to your account and all of your sins nailed to His cross. Part of the challenge all of us face as Christians in this age of tension between the cross of Christ and the second coming of Christ is that we struggle with the remaining sin nature that is prone to disobey God and to rebel against His law. It's not that some of us are spiritual and others are carnal. It's that all of us are spiritual Christians who sometimes act and behave in very carnal and sinful ways. The book of Romans, the book of Galatians, Paul speaks about this ongoing battle between the spirit and the flesh that rages inside each and every Christian. And in Romans 7, he speaks very candidly, very honestly about his own struggle against the flesh. For I know, says Paul, that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do not, now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. (laughs) Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Just like all of us in this room, the Apostle Paul struggled with a fleshly, carnal nature. At times he gave in to the temptation to sin and to disobey the moral law of God. Paul understood from his own personal experience, there is a very real and very painful discrepancy between our spiritual position and our spiritual practice that even the best and the most mature of Christians will continue to struggle against sin and will sometimes fail and falter in that struggle. Truth is that sometimes each and every one of us act in carnal and sinful ways. There are also times in our lives when we struggle deeply with habitual sins. We may even backslide for a period of time into the old patterns of sinful disobedience to Christ. In certain ways, I am a carnal Christian and so are you. So is the Apostle Paul. But that doesn't mean we can stay in that condition forever with no conviction of sin and no desire to repent and no effort to seek after holiness. As D.A. Carson has put it, Paul does not have in mind someone who has made a profession of faith, carried on in the Christian way for a short while, and then reverted to a lifestyle indistinguishable in every respect from the world. After all, these Corinthian believers are meeting together for worship. They call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are extraordinarily endowed with spiritual gifts. They are wrestling with theological and ethical issues. They are in contact with the apostle whose ministry brought them to the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is not inventing a third religious category for people who want heaven but have no desire for holiness, and he's not trying to suggest that a person can be justified by faith without also being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 
Paul is not trying to lull the Corinthians to, to sleep. He is not comforting and reassuring them into hell. He's trying to wake them up. He's rebuking them like a loving but concerned parent. And he is telling them to grow up and act their age. He's showing them they are not maturing and growing in Christ as they ought to be growing and maturing. Paul desperately wants this church to see their constant fighting and quarreling with one another is not in line with the gospel truth they profess to believe. These Christians are living in contradiction to the gospel they profess, and because of that, they desperately need to repent. And Some of these Corinthians have become so hardened and indifferent to their own sinful patterns, they need to examine themselves carefully to determine whether they are truly in the faith, whether the Spirit of God truly lives in their hearts. As we conclude our time in the Word this morning, I'm well aware that all of us in this room are at different points in our walk with the Lord, at different points in our ongoing battle against sin in the flesh. Some of us in the room today are baby Christians who have just begun to walk in Christ and to learn what it means to live as a Christian and to honor the Lord with our lives. And if you're here today as a new Christian who's recently committed your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I want to reassure you Paul's harsh word of rebuke here in 1 Corinthians 3 is not directed towards you. Paul is not rebuking spiritual babies in this passage. He is rebuking the more mature Christians who are not acting their age. So this is not a passage that should discourage you in any way or cause you to question or doubt your standing before God. Just as babies bring great joy into a family, so new believers bring great joy into every Christian church. And I'm absolutely delighted that we have a number of of new Christians here at Rosedale who are taking their first steps of obedience to Christ. If you're a new Christian here this morning, I want you to walk away from the message today with an understanding that the Christian life is a marathon and not a sprint. The Christian life is a lifelong process of spiritual growth and development. All of us begin the Christian journey drinking milk and learning the basics, making lots of mistakes. But as we grow in the Lord and pursue Him with our whole heart, He will help us to grow, to begin eating solid food, and eventually to grow up into mature manhood. The beginning of the Christian life, there is often a large and obvious gap between our position in Christ and our practice of holiness. But as we continue to grow and take steps of obedience, we find over time that the gap between our spiritual position and our spiritual practice will get smaller and smaller, even though it will never fully disappear. It can be a temptation early on in the Christian journey to get frustrated with our slow progress, to give up the race, but I want to encourage you not to do that because the Bible says in Philippians 1 verse 6, he who has begun a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Some of us here today are new Christians who are still drinking milk and learning the basics of the Christian faith. Others here today have been Christians for much longer and have already made that transition from milk to solid food. Some of us have been sitting under solid Christian preaching and teaching longer than this preacher's been alive. If you're here this morning and you've been walking with the Lord for a number of years now, I think this text in 1 Corinthians 3 provides a good opportunity for self-examination to see whether or not we are growing and developing as we should. There's nothing wrong with being a baby Christian. But God does not want us to remain spiritual babies forever. He wants us to grow and mature, to take steps forward in our relationship with Him. The problem in ancient Corinth was a lack of growth and maturity. That can be a problem in our lives and in our church. 
Although it's absolutely true that we will never fully overcome the effects of our sin nature and our battle with the flesh, it's also true that the trajectory of our Christian lives should be one of increasing victory over sin and a slow but steady growth in godliness and holiness. We can look back over the past five years and see some of the ways we have grown in the Lord, some of the sins we put to death through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is a sure sign that God is working in our lives. He's conforming us more and more to the image of of His Son. But if, on the other hand, we look back over the past number of months or years and determine that we've made peace with the sin or that we're staying in one spot, perhaps that we're even taking a few steps backwards, it should be a cause for sober self-examination and repentance before the Lord. Paul's admonition for all of us this morning who battle against sin in the flesh is found in Galatians 5, and I will close our time together with these words. But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Amen.